Hello and welcome. You are listening to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt E-Ink Tablet Gerasimovich. And I'm Cameron Lalana, who prepared for this episode by eating Brutabrod and drinking white wine. That is incredibly thematic. I <laughs> prepared for this episode by, as my title suggests, taking notes on my new E-Ink Tablet. Yes, I am that kind of person. They are really sexy notes. I've seen them. They're pretty sexy. Yeah. I would never have guessed that. They look like a scan. <laughs> it does. So not that we're like shilling for this tablet, but we kind of are. I won't even say the name. I won't even say the name. <laughs> That's how much I'm not going to shill for it. But if they wanted to have me shill for them, I <clears throat> I probably would. <laughs> <laughs> this and the last episode have really cemented our, our like low standards for being sponsored. I just, I just you know, I just want to feel needed. I want to feel, I want to feel, I want to feel sponsored. Really? That's fair. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I want to feel needed in a way that also gets me money. I, I could use some money. Yeah, I, I probably could. So Cameron, what are, you, what are you drinking this week? This week, I am, I'm actually going to soft dox myself here. I'm drinking a very, <laughs> I'm drinking a local <laughs> brew uh, from Yolo Brewing Company. And, and Yolo is the county in which it is brewed. And Yolo is the county in which I live. Uh, it mm-hmm. is a red you, ale, Dullahan's you, Red. Very, you didn't need um, to include the last part. You could have just said it was just a county. You didn't have to say you lived there. <laughs> well, I said I was going to soft dox myself, and I'm going to deliver on that. <laughs> anyway, it's a it's a it's it's very tasty ale. How about you, Matt? What are you drinking? So I'm I'm con- I'm continuing my my train of degeneracy. Uh, this week I'm just drinking simple classic Jack and Coke, but I am drinking it out of the Jack Daniels special edition Christmas glasses that apparently you can buy in, oh. in grocery stores. <laughs> it's like a, a little okay. Jack Daniels bottle, and it comes with this really cute like highball glass with uh, uh, snowflakes on it. It's pretty cute. Okay, yeah, that that does sound pretty cute. It's it's pretty nice actually. <laughs> it's it's the only highball glass I've ever owned, so it's exciting. That's that's fair. Yeah. Well, it's appropriate. It's it's getting me in the mood to talk about our work of the week. What is yes. it, Cameron? What is the work? We are we are reading Sankhya, or we have read half of Sankhya by Sakhar Prilepin. Yes, you heard him right. This is a two-parter episode. This week we are talking about part one of Sankhya through chapter seven. And uh, Cameron's going to give a quick summary, but before he does, this is just kind of a content warning. This book is pretty graphic, a lot of discussion of violence, of racism, and uh, an implied rape scene, which we will be talking about. So if you're uncomfortable with any of those, check the show notes, and we will do our best to direct you around those topics. Yeah. So... In order to get into Sankhya, you kind of have to understand the political and historical context of Prilepin writing this in the early 2000s. So I don't want to assume anyone knows that much about Russian history. So we're going to start it as all things should be started with the fall of the Soviet Union. I would talk about some of the reasons for that, but there are a lot of economic, cultural, political reasons for that. And depending which ones I cite, I will get yelled at on the internet. So Also, I'll yell at you here on the podcast if that'll make you feel better. (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah, it'll it'll start here and it'll just continue. <laughs> <laughs> so the Soviet Union ceased to be on the 25th of December 1991. In the recent months, there had been a number of uh, republics in the Soviet Union that had been claiming independence. In late 1991, there was the August coup where Soviet military elites tried to overthrow uh, the premier at the time, Gorbachev. 
And once that failed, there was another parade of secessions. And eventually, Gorbachev basically resigns. He declares his office extinct, and he hands over the powers that remain, which are essentially in in Russia at that time, and he hands that all over to Yeltsin. So on uh, 1991, December 26th, Russia officially begins to exist again. Now, the government of this new Russian republic, uh, Yeltsin, and his cabinet are full of, of liberals. And when I say liberals, I don't mean that in the liberal-conservative divide. I mean, like, economic, political, overall small-l liberals who believe in capitalism, more or less. And in this new system, Yeltsin and his cabinet wanted to lead the Soviet, or the former Soviet republic, which is now Russia, into economic success like they had been seeing in the West after the kind of opening of the country through Glasnost in the late years of the USSR. At the time, former communist states in Eastern Europe, especially Poland, had been having great success with what we would now term shock therapy or suddenly applying capitalism and like free market tenets into their economies. So Yeltsin and his cabinet, especially led by Yegor Gaidar, launch into shock therapy. They, they implement a number of policies throughout the 90s and privatizations and all this stuff. And TLDR, it does not go well. The new Russian economy is heavily concentrated in quite few hands. Wealth inequality suddenly shoots up. You have the appearance of homelessness, of poverty, of all these things that had previously more or less unknown in the USSR. And it was generally a bad time. Business developed, business and gangsterdom were basically the same thing. I actually have a friend who came to the U.S. during this time uh, because his dad, uh, basically their, his dad's company and other company were having a gang war, and after someone's car got blow, blown up, he decided Russia was not a place to raise kids. It was a wild time. Yeah, that'll, that'll do it. That, that, I, would, I would come to the same conclusion, I think. Probably. 50-50. <laughs> so you have this sudden application of, of shock therapy and capitalism, and it does not go well for a lot of Russia. And in the early 2000s, once you have sort of a settling of this, we move on from Yeltsin to uh, Putin in in 1999. And things are settling down, but they're not really good. Society is stricken by this sort of malaise because they are now the inheritors of a failed empire. The economy is still not good. A lot of people are still suffering from the the violence, the deprivation in the 1990s. And people are feeling like, did we do the wrong thing? Maybe we didn't necessarily like the USSR, but it appears that what the West promised us was kind of a false promise. We didn't get the wealth for the most part. Some of us got a lot of wealth, but for the most part, we did not get the wealth we thought was somewhat ubiquitous in Western countries. And suddenly you start to see a lot of political parties of varying elements pop up. And an adherent of one of these most popular political parties was Zakhar Prilepin, who was born in 1975 uh, spent his early years in the 1990s working as uh, various things, working in Omen or, or riot control as a guard, as a janitor, and later fighting in both the First and Second Chechen Wars. Now, by the time you reach the 2000s, Prilepin is now a journalist for what he would call kind of, well, he called them rags, now, obviously not super into the people he was writing for. And at this time, he starts to write. And he writes his first book, Pathology, which is very well received. And then after that, in 2005, to be published in 2006, he writes Sankhya. And Sankhya is <laughs> a tale that was widely embraced by the Russian and frankly, even, even Western media apparatus as a diagnosis of an era, of the loss that people felt, of the need for or the want for something else. And it 
was maybe a little bit more instructive than a lot of people thought it was meant to be, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Matt, how did you react to this book? You read this for the first time within the last year, I think, right? Yeah, so I read this probably in March-ish. Similarly, when my world <laughs> was coming to an end because of the pandemic, <laughs> and I was finishing my last semester of my undergraduate, so that was when I first read this, and I probably wasn't in the right space to read this. I didn't really think too much of it, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> really just trying to be done with school is what I was trying to do. Uh, tr that is, trying to be done with school before I go on to many more years of school. <laughs> yeah. And so this is the first time that I had really sat down and gave it probably a fair chance of a read, I think. And I liked it. I definitely liked the first half, probably more than the second one. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, the first one kind of, it touches on a lot more themes that were relevant at the time. I think that the the second half is kind of much more violent and, you know, we'll get into it next week and it'll still be, <clears throat> this will be a great episode of the podcast that you should definitely listen to. But <laughs> first episode, I mean, the first episode of the podcast is covering the kind of, I guess, like you said, the diagnosis, kind of what's what's wrong through the eyes of a young adult in Russia. I mean, how did you how did you feel about it? I I think I had a, a little bit more of a positive response the first time. Not positive like I agreed with Prilepin. I, I, I want to <laughs> say right now I don't. I don't necessarily know if we need to say that, but... Maybe. Maybe. So Prilepin, as a writer, is partially diagnosing some of the, the malaise that especially a lot of young men at this time are feeling in Russia. And this was really interesting to me as a political science student. He was doing a lot of work on the early Russian era and late Soviet era, so I thought it was really useful for understanding that sort of mindset. And I still do think it's really useful in understanding, I guess, what you'd call a more radical mindset. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I liked it from that perspective, and I still do really like it from that perspective. But, you know, as a book itself, it definitely, there, there, it, there are rises and falls and points when it, it is generally quite good. And then I think as we'll talk about some parts when it gets really quite awful. <laughs> Yeah, I think in in terms of like the value of the prose as a writer, like that's not really why people read this book. I think it's more of the feeling of the book overall. But there, that being said, there are some chapters that have really excellent writing, and then there are some chapters that read like a Wattpad novel that I would have read when I was thirteen years old, and are just <laughs> like really, really bad. Uh, but you know, we'll sprinkle some of those in there to uh, lighten up. <laughs> the episode. Yeah. Let's get into Sankhya. So I'm going to do a, a brief summary. I guess I'll probably do a chapter by chapter. That's just kind of how my notes are organized. And I'll save kind of the discussion for Cameron and I at the end. So chapter one opens pretty abruptly. Sankhya, uh, Sasha, really, as he's known throughout the book, is with his political party at this rally. He's part of this party called the founding fathers and they're at just kind of this uh yearly yell and scream kind of rally uh it's one of those rallies where like there are actual people trying to speak and talk about things but the radical group that he's associated with the the founders as they're known colloquially really they 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 start a little a little, <laughs> a little kerfuffle to to say to say that lightly they yeah yeah, they, uh, you know, they're, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're disrupting, they're picking up parts of the fence, they're throwing it at the police. 
And so eventually uh, there are three agents of Oman called in. That is the like Russian, like, I don't know how to describe it, like special police almost, basically like riot police or yeah, very heavily, heavily militarized police force. And they come, come in dressed all black. They've got extensive weaponry, access to basically everything. And they're a really faceless kind of figure throughout the book. None of them really have any personalities per se. And they are able to skirt the law because nobody really knows. No, well, by the time they get called in, it's pretty serious. So the government kind right. of uh, you know, doesn't really care how they take care of the situation. So that's right. something we'll see, especially throughout the first part. I think you and I ran into Oman when we were in Russia. Did we? Maybe I'm misremembering this, but I remember there being Oman guys at that hockey game we went to where there were like eight types of security. Well, that's very possible because I remember at that hockey game, like this this little kid in front of us tried to get past uh, this old like grandpa who was sitting on the aisle seat and the grandpa yelled at the kid for disrupting him watching the hockey game. And then mm. the kid's dad yelled at the grandpa and they started kind of kind of yelling at each other and that's one of those situations where you're gonna need uh, <laughs> that's where you need a precise application of police brutality yeah uh <laughs> so yeah yeah so i mean possible <laughs> yeah anyway <laughs> yeah so basically they disrupt this rally they start going absolutely crazy and sasha and a couple of his friends they you know they're flipping cars they're burning stuff they're uh you know, somebody jump kicks the mayor. It's absolutely insane. And they start to realize that they're kind of being, they're, they're being chased in such a way that's kind of cutting them off and they're picking them off individually to arrest or whatever they are going to do. And so Sasha and his friends are, you know, trying to get away. They, you know, get on a trolley and they're trying to make a run for it. And they don't quite make it, and several of the Oman pull them off the trolley, and they're you know slamming their heads against the side of the bus, and they're they're beating them pretty 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 badly, and and the trolley bus driver has to kind of say like, can you not do this next to the trolley? There are literally children on board, and so eventually, kind of what happens is when when the uh, when, when the police catch up catch up with them, the Oman kind of leaves them alone, leave them to the police. And the police just, they don't really want to deal with it. They don't want to deal with the paperwork of what would happen if they book them or put them in jail and they have sustained all these kind of injuries because they're afraid that it'll kind of get out to the media, which is, uh, uh, media in this is still has like some influence. They're worried that, you know, people are going to be outraged by the way that they've treated the kids, even though they were, you know, they were burning cars and whatnot. And so... They let, they let him go, basically. And it's kind of something that we'll see throughout the next couple of chapters whenever the police are involved. Like, the level of punishment depends on the level of accountability and the level of, do I want to f- fill out the report that I'm required to fill out? So, And how much do I hate the people that you've done a crime against? Yeah, that, well, yeah, that is part of it later, for sure. So chapter two, to, I guess, kind of escape some of the heat from this last this last rally that they had disrupted in Moscow, Sasha goes back. He goes back to his village. I don't think it's ever named where he actually lives. It's just not Moscow, basically. Not a very big city. And so he goes home, writes a note to his mom, says, all right, I'm going to go to uh, my grandparents' village, which is even further out. And this is probably my favorite 
chapter personally. It's a really, a really interesting one, the, the way that Sasha kind of experiences his grandparents' village, because I think that's also where he was born, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, born and raised, I think. Yeah, so he has a real, like, he has an actual relationship with this village that doesn't come off the way that you would expect it to. So this whole scene, basically, is Sasha trying to... Uh, trying to, the way I read it was he's trying to kind of connect with his youth, which is normally a really happy time for most people, and he's completely unable to. His grandpa is on the brink of death. His grandpa basically begs him to stay just a little bit longer in the village so that he can help him, uh, help his grandma bury him because there are no men left in the village because everyone's dead. And Sasha kind of... You know, he goes out for a walk one day. He goes down to the beach where him and his dad used to go as a kid. And everything's dead and dying. It's all, it's weeds. It's, the water is sludge. And just everywhere in the village, like, <laughs> everyone's dying out. There's this really extensive backstory on Sasha's dad and his two brothers, how they both died from alcoholism. His brothers from crashing motorcycles and his dad just from drinking and his brothers, his dad's brothers were also drunk when they crashed those motorcycles, though. Yeah. So it's really like, it's really quite sad the way that he kind of has to, I don't know, it's in most of us, you know, you go back to where you grew up, it's happy memories. But for Sasha, is it's really not. And he has no real relationship with his past. His, his, his grandpa and his grandma, they were really thinking, I, I forgot the, the exact quote, but kind of they were saying that, you know, we hope that our children would eventually be buried next to us, but instead they've taken our places. So they've watched everything that they've brought into the world more or less die. Mm -hmm. uh, the country, the people, it's its really sad. And so Sasha, he, he also has a, a moment where he's kind of looking at the family photos on the wall and he's thinking like, when his grandparents die, he's going to be the last person that have, has ever seen any of the photos that are on the wall not even just the photos of his family, but kind of like the peripheral people that are in them, the way he's thinking about them just being kind of lost to time and the next people coming in and throwing out the photos. It's It was a really good... I thought this was probably the strongest chapter of the novel, uh, for, for me at least. Yeah, no, I can see that. It Even beyond what Prelepin intends, it is a pretty dire diagnosis of the problems of provincial Russian life. Yeah, I think you get the gist of the story through this chapter and if this was just a short story i feel like if you had to pick one of the chapters this really gets to the root of it i think but this however is not a short story <laughs> <laughs> however he keeps keep writing yeah he keeps writing uh so yes so chapter three is the one where we are introduced to another founder his name's negative he plays a fairly big role throughout the rest of the book He's somebody that Sasha is like kind of close with, though he's not really, it's hard to explain his relationship with the other people in his party because they're not like, I don't know, they're all just so angry. It's not like they're just pals. They're kind of like, you know, waiting to burn something down next. He So Negatives is a couple years younger than Sasha, but Sasha talks about how he grew up in an orphanage and that makes him seem older uh, than he is. And he's really stern and very serious. And so Sasha and Negative and his two other friends, Venka and Rogov, come to his town to evade the police in Moscow because they're trying to lay low after the protest. So Sasha's trying to figure out, okay, where do I take the, <laughs> the where do I take all of these like tough looking guys from my radical political party? 
I know, I'll take them down to the local university where <laughs> Sasha talks with Professor Bezeltov, who is, so Sasha's dad was a professor. So Professor Bezeltov was one of his students and he was he was friends with Sasha's father. So they, he Sasha has a standing invitation to come talk with him kind of whenever he wants. They meet up at a cafe because he doesn't want to talk in his office. And there's a pretty long scene where they're talking about politics generally specifically Bezeltov is trying to figure out like okay what do you want and this is something that comes up throughout most of the book is okay you're sitting here you're burning stuff what do you want to come from it what is your ideal vision for Russia and neither of them can really see eye to eye I don't think uh Bezeltov Sasha feels like is really he has this really kind of almost spiritual approach to it Bezeltov is really like he exemplifies the liberal view I think in Russia and Sasha talks about kind of the, the the ethnic quality of Russia and preserving, you know, what what is Russia? He boils it down to ethnicity. That's a really big thing for him. And a really big thing for the rest of this chapter. They, you know, they kind of decide, you know what, not nothing's gonna come from this. So Bezeltov and them, they split ways and they go to just this crappy little bar on the outskirts of town. And they're talking with an old like Afghanistan army vet. And he also kind of says like, okay, <clears throat> he presses them in a very similar way and says, okay, what are you going to do for me? What is your party doing for me? And they get into this whole debate. And a really interesting point that I like from this was when the Afghan vet says, you guys, you know, all you do is throw tomatoes, whereas I actually had to throw grenades at people. And one of Sasha's friends says like, you know, throwing tomatoes is actually much much worse than throwing a grenade at somebody because if you throw a grenade, the worst that's going to happen is somebody's going to kill you. Whereas after I throw a tomato, somebody's going to come and beat me to the brink of death, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's really telling for basically the rest of the novel and the way the police basically uh, beat people just kind of freely. Yeah, Rogov, who, who is talking to the vet, has also fought and points out that the environment that the vet fought in, which is two sides each armed against each other is a different environment from one side with tomatoes who are then arrested, put away for years and, and are tortured by the police. And he argues having experienced both or at least claiming to have experienced both that the, the latter is worse. Yeah. So that's kind of their, you know, that's their, their thought on it. And the chapter ends in kind of the interesting way. Also still a very telling way. They, go to a marketplace which is uh, normally run by people from the caucuses and they do not like those people because they are really big into the idea of ethnic purity in Russia and you know really supporting like Russians uh, meaning specifically not people from the caucuses who are not thought very highly of throughout Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union and so they are kind of like reenacting uh, an offensive play uh, of people in the caucuses and there are some caucasian men who see them and they you know they get into a fight basically sasha and his friends are, are about to get beat because there's you know more men from the caucuses that are coming to join this fight uh, until the police until the police show up and they uh they arrest everybody you know they don't they don't hold them for very long but one of the interesting parts of the book was at the end of this chapter when the policeman lets them out and he basically says, like, hey, I would have picked a fight with those worms, too, if I was you. And Sasha, like, 
not that not that he I guess disagrees with the policeman in the, like so the point he takes issue with is not the point that a normal person probably would have taken issue with. It's not that he's dehumanizing <laughs> the people from the caucuses. It's the fact that he thinks he's on the same side as Sasha. And Sasha does not like this because he doesn't want to be on the same side as the police, as anybody that's representative of the government or the state, as broadly as you can think of it. So he's just kind of, you know, disgusted by that. And that's kind of where the chapter ends. Uh, chapter four is a pretty somber one. It's hinted at throughout the first three chapters. Sasha's kind of talking about his father after he died and how he had to bury him, which was a complete disaster because Sasha's grandparents' village where he went to bury them can only really be accessed in the summer because it's so remote. The the roads are so bad that unless you have a really heavy-duty tractor, you can't really get out there. So him and his mother, in the winter, uh, they hire some guy in his bus or his truck to take them and his dad in the coffin out there. Sasha's dad has no friends that are willing to really help him except for Professor Bezeltov, who's the only one that goes and helps. So Sasha has this kind of interesting relationship with him throughout the book as kind of the remaining link to his father, but also somebody who he now resents because of his politics. So basically, as you might imagine, the truck, bus, whatever... I can't make it out there. The guy says, he gets to a point, he says, I can't go any further. We're going to get snowed in. And so Sasha and Bezeltov take Sasha's father from the back of the truck in his coffin, and they have to drag him about 10 miles to where the village is, which is not what you want to do in the really heavy snow. It's an absolute disaster. It's a really fascinating chapter. I won't go into all the details, but basically they're able to make it only because before leaving Sasha had left a message with one of the neighbors saying that they were coming that day. And one of the neighbors had seen that it was, you know, snowing, really difficult conditions. So he fortunately comes out uh, in his like tractor to kind of look in the surrounding area in the woods to see if they had maybe gotten stuck anywhere and he had been able to help them. So fortunate, but an, ab- an absolute disaster of a trip. Uh, basically everything that could have gone wrong has gone wrong. So it's an interesting chapter that Pelepin chose to kind of nestle in between, uh, like, or nestle after the first three chapters. To me, I think it's interesting how he kind of keeps coming back to his childhood. And this is not a, a chapter that, like, it's not a memory that you should really be one that would necessarily make you happy. I think for a lot of people thinking about, like, a relationship with a deceased relative, usually it's, like, positive memories. Whereas this, every time Sasha talks about his dad, it's just disaster next chapter uh, chapter five is back in the present sasha decides to go back to moscow because he's just he's kind of fed up with being in his uh his local village he doesn't really want to be uh he wants to be in the center of the action basically with the rest of the founders and he meets yana who is one of the kind of really important founders she was uh, in a relationship with the head founder kostenko and he is currently in jail, though. So he heats us up for a little spicy drama in Chapter 5, where Sasha... Please don't call it that. Uh, <laughs> Please do not call it that. <laughs> I say it with a really heavy drop of sarcasm, because I'm going to read the best and worst excerpt from a, uh, a book ever written in a little bit. So uh, Sasha meets her outside the founder's bunker. That's what they call this like uh, basement that they coordinate in. They go back to Yana's place. She invites Sasha there. Uh, she's really distant 
she's like not really uh sasha's trying to basically figure out like am i gonna have sex with her or not that's basically what he's trying to figure out and he's having a hard time getting a read on her it's in this chapter is the first time when it's i the way i read it was it was implied that she was that she was raped by one of the oman people because uh, she was able to get away after the protests uh, in chapter one and as kind of a sore spot for her sasha definitely doesn't pick up on that because he's kind of an idiot throughout yeah well yeah he's, he's not real concerned with their with their consent no he's definitely not so yeah so basically they they go back to yana's place and they have what is probably the most poorly written sex scene in world literature i would say I, what do you think i've read worse but only on like fanfiction.com okay dot <clears throat> net excuse me sorry dot uh, net you gotta get it right <laughs> So sh- shall I read the, the thing that I read to you before we started recording? I wish you wouldn't, but I think they deserve to know. Okay. This is the funniest thing that I've read, probably. <clears throat> he stroked Yana. She was slender, delicately slender, and still a little damp from the shower, slightly cool and moist. But in one place, she was hot and surprisingly wet. His hand touched her there. She sighed faintly. So this was the worst thing I've ever had to read in my entire life. Uh, I wrote LMAO in the margin of my my copy throughout the whole sex scene. Uh, this prompted me to write an email to my professor after reading this uh, exact chapter when I was an undergrad and said, can we please read a book by a woman, please, you think? Uh, just because I hated it so much. I hated every second of it. Uh, <laughs> uh- can I can I just come in and make it real make it a little bit worse? Yes. I so here's the part that got me. This is the part that I hate the most. And Yana's breasts weren't round and hard like apples, and her nipples weren't pointy. No, on the contrary, her breasts undulated. Milty <laughs> Milty Milky <laughs> Milky small, childlike, soft and almost nippleless, only pink semicircles. But when she was dressed, her nipples seemed sharp, defiant, flashed through Sasha's mind. Now, what the fuck? I am not sure if Sasha, to this point in the book, has ever met a woman. If Perlepin has ever met a woman. This was just like this chapter where like you didn't need to write the sex scene. I'll just say that first off. It was super clear what was going to happen uh, all throughout the way like Sasha was like leading her you know with the in, in the small of her back through like the metro and I was just like okay yeah this, this is where this is leading and it's really you know you just didn't have to do it you just didn't have to do it and you made me read it which is worse genuinely please I beg of you literally never describe anything about your sexual partner as childlike yep for the love of God mm-hmm. Jesus Christ mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'd like to move on from this because it was horrible every time I've had to read it. (laughs) Yep. So, chapter six. We get into the uh, juicy action of the party. Yana uh, asks Sasha if if he has any friends that he know that might be up for some sort of mission. So, Sasha enlists his friend Negative back from all the way in the beginning of the book for this mission. Uh, He has to go home to get him and... And he comes back to Moscow. And so basically, the party would like Negative to go to Riga to seize an observation deck in a central square to protest the government there that is bringing criminal charges 
against Russian World War II vets uh, living in the country on the anniversary of the victory of World War II, the Great Patriotic War. And so here you kind of see they're trying to advance their, or bring attention to, I guess, this like, I, it's hard to, I, I don't know, I don't want to call it like nationalist agenda per se. It, it totally is. But, you know, so that's basically what they're trying to do. Basically, he goes and does just that. It's not that exciting of a chapter, I don't think. I don't know. You got anything else in this chapter? Or just like This kind of starts, sets up some stuff for yeah. later chapters where Sasha himself shows that he wants to be more involved, that he wants to be... He actually wants to be involved in the same operation that Negative is. He asks Matvi, who is now the leader in Kostenko's absence, if there's anything else for him to do. And Matvi says, yes, but hold on. And also, kind of the chapter where Yana confirms, or at least heavily implies to Sasha, that the reason why she escaped being arrested, like about, I think about 90 other founding fathers in the first chapter, uh, was because an Alman officer had raped her. And then asks him to leave her alone, basically, because he's been kind of almost openly lusting after her for this whole chapter and is kind of expecting her to reciprocate. And she is basically like, no, and then walks out. Now, I do want to bring this up as we go into chapter seven. That is the reading. That is how I totally understand this to have happened. I think that is what is most supported in the text. However, there's this little part in chapter seven that gives me just a little bit of pause. And it's something that was brought up when I took the class. And it's that Hmm. we don't know a lot about Yana. And somebody kind of brought this up. So in the beginning of chapter seven, Yana gives Sasha a burner phone and he doesn't know why. So... At one point, she calls him to say that Negative has seized a tower in Riga. And almost immediately after, Sasha's abducted off the streets by uh, a couple of Mon officers. He's taken to this like detention facility for interrogation. They beat him because he does not cooperate. They break his nose. There's blood everywhere. They drive him out to the middle of the woods. They undress him. They beat him. They cut him with a broken bottle. It's horribly, horribly graphic. And... He doesn't give anybody up. He refuses to cooperate, and they basically leave him on the brink of death in the middle of a ditch in the middle of nowhere. So the only part about this that that really gave me pause about Yana, it was just like the fact that she gave him this burner and called him to tell him that they had successfully completed this mission, which Sasha wasn't really involved in. Like, he set negative Mm. up, but he wasn't involved. He didn't have any role to play in this. And so somebody had posed in a class that I had taken previously that Yana is kind of working as, like, working this inside job. I don't know, like, if they didn't really necessarily talk about, like, whether or not she was raped. It was just, like, her role really was, like, as an informant, more or less. And that's why she's able to evade kind of some of the consequences. It's interesting because it ties up some of the things that aren't really talked about ever again like the fact that she was dating Kostanko and like I don't know there's just like a lot to it and it's not to say that the two necessarily couldn't have happened like they could have both very well happened but there are I feel like you know definitely one of them's confirmed the other one's a little bit more ambiguous at least in this point of the book but more or less that's where we're left off with Sakya is is he dead in the middle of a ditch somewhere we'll find out when we start chapter 8 his vision fades to black and it says Along the lines of, and, and that was mm-hmm. the end. So, <laughs> yeah, literally, that was, and that was the end. Yeah. So that's where we are halfway through Sankhya. So there are a lot of themes to get at here. That was kind of a long yeah. summary, but it's important to know for 
getting into what we're talking about. And next week, we're going to be talking a little bit more, I think, about the political ideology Sankhya kind of puts forward. But this week, we're going to focus more so on kind of the diagnoses that Sankhya makes, which is, I think, for both of us, maybe more interesting. But certainly next week will be an interesting exploration of how that what that implies. Interesting in a, in a different sort of way, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to ask you a question. What I know that you had a couple things that struck you, but what really stuck out to you about the first half of the book? What comes to your mind when you want to talk about it? Definitely in chapter two for me. I don't know. It was really emotional just reading through it. I think that is the strongest writing in the book for sure, because I think it it kind of meshes really well with Sasha's kind of, I, I don't know. He's really kind of blunt. He's really quite, I don't know how to describe him exactly he's just he's very angry and this is kind of the place where you can see where where it kind of stems from i think i think it's the most interesting probably like historically with his grandparents and his parents and everything going on in that chapter just the difference between the rural urban divide in russia that very much exists and it's it's good it's also the only place that I'm aware of where he's called Sankyas by his grandma. And to me, that was interesting. This was pointed out to me. I'm not a native Russian speaker, so I probably would not have picked up on this. Sankya and Sasha are both diminutive names of Alexander, but Sasha is way more common. That's what everybody calls him. Sankya is not really a... Like, it is, in this case, a diminutive of Alexander, but it's a really weird one. Like, it's not a natural one. It's not one that people would normally ordinarily go towards. So it points even further to this, like, divide that he has between not just rural and urban, but, like, his disconnect between his childhood and his present and how that plays into his future. He really, he feels like he has no place whatsoever in society. He has no connection to his past. He has nothing to do in the future. And that only fuels more violence in the, you know, in the future. Yeah, I also really enjoyed that chapter for similar reasons in that I think it is really, I don't think it was, I don't know if it was necessarily intended as such, but it really reads as a metaphor for kind of like old Russia. And Sankhya or Sasha is very concerned with preserving the Russianness of Russia. Mm-hmm. And and here you kind of see that it's it's kind of dying. The village is mostly dead. Almost everyone who is in the story, with the exception of his grandparents, a lot of the people that Sasha knew growing up are all dead at this point. And at one point, Sankhya's grandfather probably says the sorry, saddest thing I read in the book, which is that when he's wondering if there will be any men left to bury him, he mentions that he was there and almost all of the boys in the town were born, and he was also there to bury all of the boys in the town. And now there's no one left. Yeah. And it really reflects on what you said earlier about how everything seems dead, where... Sasha grew up swimming, is now covered in trash and, and full of weeds, and, and there's just really nothing there. And, and Sasha's grandfather outright says that he's trying to die. Sasha's grandmother says, you know, your grandfather doesn't eat anything. He just drinks a little bit of water, and Sasha's grandfather is basically just like, I'm trying to die. Why can't I die? Mm-hmm. And asks Sasha to stay just because he's trying so hard to die that he, he just wants him to be there for a few more days to bury him so his grandmother, yeah. Uh, so, or, yeah, so she doesn't have to bury him alone. Yeah, this like it ties into actually a lot of themes about this book, which is why I liked it, because the only scene I think where Sasha does anything productive is when he actually cleans up the beach that him and his father used to swim at. He he sees like it's it's all there's all trash and weeds and just bushes and just all crap all over the beach. So he takes some time and he actually cleans it out and he says, you know, it doesn't look bad. It doesn't 
it doesn't look like how it used to look. Like there's basically no going back to how it used to look. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. And so there's like this frustration because he knows that I think I think he knows that there's no going back. There's only going forward. But he he almost doesn't have anything to really completely tether him to the past and certainly really nothing to look forward to going forward. And so this idea of like this is the only productive thing he does throughout the book is interesting because when he's talking with Bezeltov, there's this one line which goes hundreds and hundreds of years back in Russian literature where he says, why are you destroying the city? Did you did you build any of this? Or maybe it was a police officer that said this to him. I can't remember. And it, and they were they respond, what do we build? What? What are you talking about? And this idea of like building versus destroying, it goes, it goes back and back and back. The most famous instance is probably Fathers and Children by Turgenev, where that's kind of the main gist of it is do you build or do you destroy and then figure out whether or not to rebuild? And one of the characters says, basically, it's not my job to rebuild. My job is to destroy and then somebody else will figure it out from there. And that is exactly what Sasha and his friends are trying to do, I feel like. Yeah, actually, I want to get deeper into the Bezlatov conversation because mm-hmm. for me, that is kind of the the thesis statement of the book. Yeah. But before we get there, I just want to say the, the one last thing about the village, uh, which is that it also shows the divide between the old Soviet way and the modern Russian era, yeah. where um, Sasha's grandfather was a, a soldier in the Russian army during World War II. He was captured. He survived. He showed model behavior. Even before that, he was the model uh, tractor operator for his entire region. He is like what the Soviet Union wanted you to be. And now here he is at the end of his life, all of his children dead, wanting to die. And when he and his wife ask Sasha, are are you working? And Sasha says, well, working for the older generations like them meant plowing the fields or doing some kind of hard labor. And for his generation, doing that kind of thing was indicative of someone who was basically economically unstable, that they were not doing well in life. So this exact same type of work, which was once prestigious, is now indicative of someone who is not doing super well economically. Yeah, though I'll say Prolepin doesn't let you just have that. He doesn't just say like that. He doesn't let you say the Soviet Union was the better way to go because he does clearly point out the way that Sasha's grandpa was a prisoner of war during World War II and he wasn't allowed to be a member of the Communist Party because he was a prisoner of war. And even though he was this like model citizen, a model tractor operator. And, and so it's, it's interesting. It goes like even further where I think Sasha kind of like he doesn't really have any connection with that you know he doesn't there's a point where he says he talks about the collective farms and he says you know I meant to ask my grandma how all that worked then I really get it so he's just like I don't know he's not the deepest (laughs) thinker for sure no and that is actually really relevant to yeah his conversation with Bezlatov and I really want to get to that because Mm -hmm. I think that's really indicative of what Prilepin is trying to say in this book so, like you said earlier, Bezlatov is kind of representative of liberals. Actually, um, in the book, one of the other characters, Rogov, calls Bezlatov a former liberal, one of the ones who had created the modern situation they're in. But basically, when Sasha and Bezlatov have their conversation, Bezlatov is asking Sasha, like, well, what do you want? Like, give me a coherent message. And there is no coherent message for the Founding Fathers to give. They just, as you said, they're looking to destroy the current order. Yeah. Because they don't they don't like what they see and they aren't as concerned with building up what happens after. And when Embezlatov 
kind of pushes and says, well, what's your national idea? Because he's sort of a, he's representative of the liberal systematic thinker of like creating systems and does not think about like things like blood and soil nationalism. And he keeps pushing for this national idea. And, and Sankhya says, well, I'm Russian. That's enough. I don't need any idea. And I, I didn't read the translation, but I'm willing to bet that when he says I'm Russian, he says I'm Ruski, which if you're in the Russian language, again, I'm not a native speaker, but saying that well, a person is Ruski and a person is Rosiski are two different things. And I would willing willing to bet that he said Ruski, which is a more restrictive definition, which is only ethnic Russians rather than Rosiski, which means like citizens of Russia, which is a really important difference here in that he is really focused, he being Sasha, is really focused on the need for Russian ethnic people to have like their soil, to be living on it and to keep existing. Or Bezlatov, he doesn't like the fact that Sankhya keeps talking about the, the Russian homeland. At one point, when Sankhya talks about the need for a Russian homeland, he says something along the lines of, wow, Russian homeland? There's no need for those kind of words. Just wow. <laughs> you know, kind of offended that Sankhya is talking about it. Because Sankhya really is talking about blood and soil nationalism. I mean, this is rep- this is sort of like lampshading the actual real-life National Bolshevik Party, especially when the, the Afghan vet that you were talking about says that they kind of ape Nazism in a way. Yeah. Uh, they, they're like bordering on that, but they're not quite taking that last step. Although at least they say they're not, but we can kind of talk about that a little bit later. How they kind of are existing in this interesting space where they both do and do not engage in straightforward blood and soil nationalism yeah i think well let's stop like right after he says right after sasha says i'm russian that's enough i don't need any national idea he starts he, i mean he mocks them and he says oh i'm russian uh but what are you gonna do with the non-russians that's immediately where he jumps to and that's not something sasha i don't think really thinks about that much but when he's in like this next chapter it's inviting you to think back to this conversation where sasha isn't really he's not thinking about that he, he says, you know, listen, Professor, no one's talking about doing anything with the non-Russians and you know it. But the interaction that he has with the men from the Caucasus right after when he gets into a fight with them shows that, like, he does have this deeply ingrained, uh, like, he doesn't like them. Bezeltov, I think, asks him something that he's not really willing to consider that deeply because he doesn't have a very deep understanding of the world. He goes back to, he really describes Kostenko and the other founders of the founders and really says how they describe the world in terms of black and white, in terms of childish language and like a primordial as if you were to be a one-year-old child just learning about the world for the first time. It's very black and white, magnificent, terrible, like, you know, kind of almost childish language. Yeah, and and so Bezletov is... When he's making fun of them, he is like talking about how they do not have a bigger idea. But at the same time, Bezlatov is, I think he's written in a way that's purposefully kind of meaningless. Because he outright says after this part that like Russia's dead and we are here to steward its soul basically. That we need to like look towards sort of a spiritualism to maintain that. And like, look, there are Russian communities all over the world that maintain their Russianness. And he, he points towards Jewish people specifically as a community that has existed for thousands of years. Uh, prior to the existence of the state of Israel, uh, without a state, and they are still a, a coherent people. And he's like, well, that's kind of what Russia needs to do. It's it. We're, we are a dying state, but the Russian spirit still exists, and it will be preserved. And then Sankhya responds, even though even just a few pages before, he says, as you pointed out, no one's talking about these ethnic minorities. He said, uh, like, where will Russian culture be preserved? In the country that will be extinct in 30 years, populated by Chinese and Chechens? Clearly indicating this sort of, you know, unease about immigrants coming into russia 
it's it's still really persuasive like it's per, not persuasive pervasive in russia like even my host mom when we were abroad in st petersburg she really did not like people from central asia i like all the prejudices that are in this book were <laughs> brought to life off the page for me in front of me on a nightly basis when we like watch the news or whatever so it's not just like it's in the book it really it like I, that's why i think like this is a uh, that's why it's such an influential book because it does capture something that's definitely there whether people want to acknowledge that or not and kind of as a wrap up to your point about this the the founding father's almost like childish view of the world although i think not like not calling it childish as it's as it's immature but purposefully black and white is really uh exemplified by rogov when after bezletov leaves sasha who is clearly feeling not confident about the situation, turns to Rogov and asks him what he what he thinks about it. And Rogov says, oh, well, Bezletov is obviously one of the ones who was a former liberal who made this state what it is today. And, you know, he says they're quick to call upon God and spirituality in times like this. But they were the same ones who invoked the name of God when they were torturing this country with the dull knife of, of, of capitalism, of, of like shock therapy in the early 90s. And then finally Rogov says, well, he's the guardian of Russian culture. Let him guard it. And then he says, we're going to go to the people. And the people are where we drink. In a warm room with some okay food <laughs> and cheap vodka. So it kind of re-exemplifies that they are kind of exhibiting this sort of, not intellectualism, which is almost like a, a way of just getting away from the problem where they, they are kind of represented as, well, we're getting right at it. And we're getting at the, right at the heart of the issue and we're not, we're not necessarily putting the deepest thought into it, but you don't need to because... We have soil, and that's enough. And I actually want to quote from a couple chapters later where um, Sasha thinks about when he comes back. Sasha was in, was in the army for a while, as all young Russian men have to be. Uh, when he's thinking about his fatherlessness, he, he understands this. Quote, Ever since he matured to army age, everything became clear. Insoluble problems no longer arose. God exists. Things are difficult without father. Mother is kind and dear. There is forever one's motherland. And I think that's kind of the thesis statement here. <laughs> that there is this sense of loss. It, even if the Soviet Union was not a good state, it was a proper Russian state. It, it had a Russian homeland. And now there is a class of people, the liberals, small L liberal, not liberal conservative divide, who are trying to destroy that. Yeah, it's it's also really interesting the more that I am like reading or rereading this part with you as we're talking about it, literally just now, it still really does make me think about fathers and children but this is like fathers and children but so much worse because both people in the argument like don't really have a coherent anything at least in fathers and children you have like nihilism and then like not nihilism and it's like somewhat coherent and Turgenev kind of points to the contradictions in them but I think that Prolepin is like does a good job of pointing to how nobody really has a good or coherent idea and it's really obvious throughout everything that they do yeah yeah it's exemplified in the arguments it's exemplified in basically all, all of everyone's actions throughout the entire book and that just leads to like you were saying because of this loss that they feel in the state that they've never had it leads to a situation in which there is a group of young angry men and women in russia and they don't know what to do except to flip cars and burn stuff yeah, and Bezletov tells them you're going to let loose enough blood to drown half this continent. And later on, Rogov says, well, it's more honest to kill your own citizens than to bomb children of other countries. Oh, yeah, this was an interesting, this was, I like this, this is an interesting part. Yeah, actually, I think that was a really interesting line where he, 
when when Sasha's like, really? And and Rogov says, well, yeah, it's a sort of truth finding. <laughs> yeah. We have citizens of our country killing citizens of our country. And he uses the example of, of like decolonization as like truth finding. That means that we have two groups of people who have two opposite sides of truth. And in killing each other, they're tr- attempting to settle on like the ultimate truth on like that sort of truth finding, which is an interesting idea. It's a it's a challenging idea for sure, and not in the sense that I'm challenged by the concept of it, but it challenges what I would think. Like, I think this is why I think it was so interesting to read as a Western viewer because we're so accustomed to this idea of like debate, as we love to say. When I think we kind of generally know that nobody's mind has ever really changed through debate, but yet we do, we do this little song and dance. And I think Sasha and his friends, like they realize that and they're kind of willing to accept that. And so they're, the way that they take that instead of finding something different that's not violent is they jump straight to violence and they're like, okay, this is now our truth finding. Yeah. So kind of the last major thing I want to touch upon isn't specific to Sankhya, but I think it's actually kind of relevant in the way that we approach any, any, almost any country can approach this sort of nationalism in the modern era, which there's this sort of borderline between, you know, are we racist or are we not? And that's really best shown in the book when Bezletov kind of accuses Sasha of being a racist and he asks him, what do you want to do with the other races? And Sasha says, well, of course, no one's talking about the other races, but they are. They just don't explicitly talk about it. Earlier in the book, I think this is about chapter three, when Sasha goes to see negative his brother positive opens the door in the house and and positive greets sankhya with allahu akbar glory to god which is like a bit of it's first it seems a little bit out of place throughout the book they they make fun of the idea that they're racists when they pick a fight with the chechens in the market it starts off because their rogov is pretending to be a miserly chechen merchant who's trying to sell um venka their friend a half drunk bottle of alcohol and the Chechens take offense to that, and they end up in a fight. And when they're in prison, the Chechens get let go first, and they're kind of commiserating over that fact, like, I can't believe they would do that. And we're like, why, why would they do that to our... And then I think Sasha responds to our objects of racial hatred, and then all of them smirked. And I think what they're trying to apply there is like, oh, everyone says, like, this is our object of racial hatred. Like, uh-huh, isn't it funny that they think that? Even though it's obviously true, but it's not something that they among themselves admit to it's like lampshaded where they kind of take on the phrasings of yeah maybe among church and people it might be a common greeting to say allahu akbar to like you know just glory to god and you see your friend that that is an innocent phrase but they're take, attaching on to these cultural signifiers and also making fun of the idea that they could be racist to kind of separate themselves from the fact that they actually are very racist that they're worried about chechens and chinese taking over the country and replacing them that uh when when they are let go because the police officer says, oh, I would have jumped those black ass worms too. They are, their objection to that is we didn't jump them. They started the fight. And, <laughs> right. and the cop is like, sure. Yeah. So it's kind of this weird, this interesting embrace of something that they kind of also deny, which kind of plays into a lot of, I guess, the the party that they're in where it's like, you're, you're talking about kind of this sense of destruction where they do not have an idea for after. And that goes for this too, where their ideology is pretty explicitly racist, but there is no like, well, what do we do next kind of thing? There's just like the, well, it plays into it, which I think is, is true for also, even among American politics, they have that kind of back and forth where you have that kind of humor, which you could call edgy, which is <laughs> might itself be <laughs> done by racist people. But there's like also that kind of ironic embrace of that, yeah, of, of 
the racism and, and denial thereof. And I think it's interesting to see it played out. Yeah, it's a lot of contradiction, basically, throughout the uh, the book. Contradictions between modern Soviets and, I don't know, everything, basically. The party is a party of contradiction. They see the world as black and white. They <laughs> say that they're not racist. They clearly are. It's um, It's interesting, but it does... I, I don't know. I think it touches on a lot of important things for modern Russia, for sure. It's... Yeah. I don't know. I think that this is definitely... It's probably... Some of the sentiments linger even today, but this is a book that's already almost 15 years old, right? So, like, elements of it, for sure, are no longer there. Though a lot of elements, I think, still remain. And at the time it came out, there were many people who credited Perlepin as a great sensitive and intelligent critic of his country's condition, which I'm pulling from a Newsweek quote, which is right in the front of my copy of the book. <laughs> and Alexei Navalny writes the opening for this book, and they all credit Prilepin as a great diagnoser of the, of the malaise of the young men in the country. I don't think they maybe these very people understood this wasn't quite a diagnosis period as a diagnosis followed by a so here's what we do now kind of thing which we will be getting to more so next week. Yeah. What are, we, what are we reading next week, though? So next week, we are going to be reading the second half of Sankhya. All right. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. The part where Matt, <laughs> which Matt described to me as, what was it? The re-Sankhya mad now part of the book. Oh, yeah. Which, <laughs> which, yeah, it's basically true. This is now the logical conclusion of what the first half of the book has set up. And... It is a little bit less, as Matt talked about earlier, perhaps intellectually stimulating. However, I think it's essential to understanding the point of this book as sort of a treatise yeah. on, on what to do with this modern era. We'll also be talking about what happens, what has happened to Prelepin today, which is really interesting and maybe is something that might cast sort of this book in a, in a different light as, as the Russian political situation has developed over the years. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to another read of the second half because maybe I'll feel differently about it. Well, we'll see next week, I guess. So you'll have to tune in to find out if Matt changes his mind. I guess I'll also have to tune in to find out too. So, you know, that'll be good for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's good. Good, good. All right. So Cameron, now that we're approaching the end of our podcast, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, how drunk would you happen to be? Hmm. I would say my average is like a character who we only mentioned once in this entire podcast. Hmm. Uh, I'm at a, at about Avenka, mm. who is uh, the group drunkard. <laughs> How about you? Where are you at? Um, I think I am uh, not on an ideological position, but I think on a, on a drunkard position of <laughs> Sasha, where I say I don't like to drink, but yet here I am, and you know, and, you know, I'm feeling good drinking out of my Christmas Jack Daniels glass right now. You're at the point of like. Sasha's grandmother, who's like, are you drinking? And he's like, I, not in the way you mean. But also she just casually pours her grandson moonshine after dinner. You know, just a casual village drink. <laughs> okay, well, you'll see us again next week. God, I hope. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you enjoyed the episode, well, first of all, that makes us happy, but also grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you happen to have a few dollars to spare, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. It'll help us buy the books we'll be reading in the future. 
If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or visit our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. <laughs>